Good morning. It's Saturday, January 30th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to the weekend. Michael, it is Couture Week in Paris. I thought I felt something different when I woke up this morning. (laughs) Your buddy Tom Brown, I don't know if you saw this, introduced children's wear, Tom Brown children's wear. Did you see this? You know, I I saw this. I had, uh, last time I had drinks with him, right before Christmas, he had just come from prepping for the photo shoot for that. It's perfect, right? I love wildly expensive children's wear. Brunello Cuccinelli does it too. It's like, don't you want to spend $2,000 on a jacket that your kid is going to get paint on at school? Yes, you do. Because they're only this cute ones, Michael. But you know what I love about the fashion world is that the show does go on for these guys. I have this sense that designers have been really bored in lockdown. And as a result, they got incredibly creative. We saw just absolute gorgeousness from Armani Privé, from Valentino, from Chanel. Uh, It's exciting. And I, for one, cannot wait to wear proper clothes again. Yeah, as we said uh, a week or two ago, I think there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand for, for, for fashion and looks after we get out of all this, after our vaccines take effect, which will, it's another story for later today. Yes. So, Michael, we have a good show today. We've got Alessandra Stanley coming on to talk about vaccines uh, and how they're rolling out and what her experience with them has been like. And the new haves and have-nots, those who have them and those who do not have them yet, right? We do. We do. We're going to talk about uh, the new Dr. Spock for the Goop set, Dr. Becky Kennedy. Can't wait for that. And we have a really interesting piece that you edited, Michael, on bespoke biopics. We're going to talk about how you can hire a very fancy director to make your own film about your life. And then what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Mm-hmm. Hanging out with you. Yes. <laughs> all right. So that's all we're going to talk about. And then I think we're going to probably recommend some movies and stuff. You know what I wanted to talk about right away, though? is like, you know, I, I just want to say, I love the French. You know why I love the French? Why wouldn't you love the French? Okay, because we have this we have this follow-up piece in this week's issue. A uh, big story that one of our, our, our correspondents in France wrote about a year or so ago about John von Southern wrote a great piece about a place in Provence called uh, Chateau Dieter. It was built by a guy named Patrick Dieter, who's kind of a... Um, a showman, and he built this $69 million faux Italianate palazzo, right? Remember the story that we did? Oh, I think when this was in our first issue, Michael, and it, it was, this was what we made. We hung our shingle out on the Chateau Dite story when we launched. And um, I love the fact that we're still following it a year and a half later. Okay. So a year and a half later, imagine if you've been down in Provence and Grasse one side, and this guy comes in and basically buys this 17 acre parcel, which had been, you know, there had been a small farmhouse on it. And over the course of a number of years, he builds this 30,000 square foot palazzo with minarets, swimming pools, cupolas, hotel suites, two heliports. Uh, he starts renting it out for for, for weddings and everything. And uh, DJs playing all night, right? And the neighbors are like, this is crazy. They take him to court They where they find out that he'd violated local zoning laws. So as John on Southern Rights this week. Recently, France's highest judicial court upheld a ruling that now Dieter has to wipe his $69 million palazzo from the face of the earth, tear it all down. All down. Go on. Michael, it is something of an eyesore. It's something of an eyesore, but it's also, it's a validation of like, you know what? You can't get away. We can't get away with this bad behavior. So that's why I love the French, which by the way, this this story also intersects with a small piece we have in the issue this week in our uh, diary, our briefings 
uh, written by George Caldrakis. And this, this piece kind of intersects with a, another law that was passed in France recently, a sensory heritage law. God bless the French. Right? So, okay, you're out in the Hamptons. You know what it's like when these sort of... Um, these people come out and they're like, God, it's so, I don't like the way that things are going out here, right? So in France, there was a rooster named Maurice, right? And he was crowing a lot out in the, out in the, in the countryside, right? And uh, a bunch of people got together and they, they wanted to make a law where that rooster was kind of loud and shouldn't he be uh, prevented from crowing when the sun rose? This is a real, this is, this, this is a real issue. Right. Michael, Michael, this is my life. Okay, I have three roosters and sixteen chickens and uh, sixteen hens, and I, I mean, my neighbors hate me, and I have I've had to give a couple of them away. I have it's been very traumatic for our whole family because we've fallen in love with them. But I'm like, guys, we live in the country, and we we do not live in town. We live like way out in the middle of nowhere, out here in East Hampton. So it's like such a bummer. But we keep getting these nasty grams in our mailbox uh, about our crowing roosters, and you know we put collars on them so they don't crow as loudly. But it's an issue everywhere, Michael, not just in France. But I do love this. I love the fact that, like, you know, the the French courts are getting involved in this and trying to preserve the heritage and integrity of the countryside. Well, and so what they did with, with the, the, the French senators when they gave this, when they approved this law, it was a sort of like smackdown of what they call the recent arrivals where they are derided as, quote unquote, neo-rurals, the new rurals, right? The people who don't really understand. Well, if you're going to live in the countryside, you're going to hear roosters. And, you know, like a year or two earlier, there was this woman down in another part of France who she, uh, in the duck breeding heartland of, of the country, and, and the Landes region, and she went to court because the ducks were clucking a lot. They're making a lot of noise. And they, so they, France, thank God, they said, you know what, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to leave the city and come to the countryside and be in neo-rural, you're going to have to learn like that there's going to be certain sort of uh, sensory heritage that you're going to, you're going to under, you're going to live with, right? So you tell your neighbors out there in the Cash Hamptons out east, you tell them this is part of how we live out here, right? Look, anyone who's ever met my roosters is willing to forgive them for being noisy because they're so beautiful. I've met them. I miss them. They miss you, Michael. But let me just go back to something. Um, You've given some of them away, like as like in order to like put them on someone's dinner table who was complaining about them. No, no, my daughter gave two away to a farmer. Uh, she went to farm camp this summer, and she was able to negotiate. Uh, she gave two of them away in exchange for six eggs, which frankly was a pretty good deal for us um, <laughs> to solve some problems. And then my husband, we you know we got a, another nasty note in our mailbox uh, over the holidays, so we had to give two of them away to a breeder on the North Fork who breeds heritage chickens and was very excited to have them. This isn't like the children's book where mommy and daddy tell you that your cat is going away to live on a farm and then you find out like later that wasn't really true. <laughs> well, we had to tell my son about it because he got, he was so, I mean, he considers them like, you know, members of the family. And so he got super upset the first time that we had to give two of them away. So, um, but you know, he took it to heart. I got a, an email from his teacher a couple weeks ago that, you know, someone brought up the chickens during sharing time and he started crying and was really distressed to learn, you know, to recall that two of them were gone. Yeah. So that's, the chicken drama continues over here, Michael, and I'll continue to update you as it unfolds. I want a whole episode about the chickens. I know everyone's going to me. You know what else? Here's sensory heritage for urban people. Yeah. The other George reports this week is in Barcelona, 
You know how you get on a subway, get on a train, and like you're looking for the quiet car? You wish everyone were quiet. Now in Barcelona, they've made it's 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 all you have to it, it, you cannot talk on the 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 public transportation there in 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 the Catalan region in Barcelona at all. No, and it's because they're trying to keep the virus spread down, right? So keep people from talking. So it's one positive, right? Everyone's got it. Like you got to be quiet. You can't talk. I kind of like this rule. Can they make this happen in New York City? That's what I'm thinking, right? That's like that's urban heritage for me. I know some people say like urban heritage would be like loud people on the subway, but to me, urban heritage would be, let's, let's just be quiet in the subway, right? Mike, we've got like 40 people running for mayor in New York right now in the primary. Like whichever one can make this law pass has my vote. <laughs> There's a new platform, right? <laughs> totally. The Spaniards are so clever when it comes to figuring out ways to mitigate against this virus. Meanwhile, we're still desperately trying to roll out this vaccine in an orderly and efficient fashion. So first of all, I think one of the biggest flubs of Biden's first few days in office was this big proclamation that they're going to inoculate 100 million Americans in 100 days. Well, it's like we were already way on pace for that, buddy. Okay, Uh, a more ambitious goal would have been 2 million a day. And now... The Biden administration has almost finalized a deal that's going to make sure that 300 million Americans have their shots by summer's end. I mean, that's that's putting a damper on the pandemic, my friend. Because I looked online, it's like, yeah, you and I are going to be in the rear of the line. Yeah, you know, I'd like to think that I'm okay with that, Michael, and I'm trying to be a patient person. But this week, the reality sunk in for me that I'm starting to get a little antsy. I want this vaccine and I want it now. And I think a lot of people are feeling this way. So one of my predictions is going to be that Biden's approval rating is going to be really contingent upon how quickly he can get this vaccine out. Because it's kind of hard to feel satisfied with life, especially once you start to see other people, the over 65s for us, getting their vaccines, starting to enjoy normal life. And yet for us, it's still, you know, five, six months away. Right. And I think that's the point of Alessandra's uh, View From Here column this week. It's it's also the kind of new haves and the have-nots, people who have the vaccine, people who don't. And then, you know, you get into this world also like, like, wait, Rupert Murdoch has the vaccine? Why does he have the vaccine? Right. And you wonder, like, is there bad behavior then happening by the rich? Are they exploiting their, their connections or not? So, right. I think it's, I mean, it's a good reason to have Alessandra talk about what she's discovered in her point of view this week. Right. Welcome, Alessandra. Alessandra, thank you so much for joining us. Now, can we talk about your vaccination status? Yes, but it's a very annoying status, which I realized because I didn't have it. And I found people who talked about having gotten the vaccine was a real irritation until I won my jackpot and uh, got it. And now I feel very smug. Is there a stigma around revealing that, I mean, are we allowed to say it? You meet the criteria. Do you feel awkward about that? I, I tried. I was thinking, well, perhaps I should say I have an underlying condition. But no, you have to actually be 65. And I think that's one of the reasons that there are parts of Manhattan where it is available is because there's just some women who refuse to admit they're 65. And that makes it possible for others to get it. So can we talk about there's a lot of frustration in this country right now and in this city about how you can get the vaccine and, you know, just being able to sign up. But you have a great analogy in your piece this week in The View From Here about really what it's like. It's You equate it to what I might, well, you can tell us about the slot machines are involved, right? <laughs> Thank you. Which one? You mean about being, like being playing the slots uh, in Atlantic City? Yeah. I mean, that's what I was thinking because, you know, it's, it's like you have this big bucket of coins and you're just stuffing 
the slot machine, hoping, hoping, hoping to get, you know, three fruits that are all match. And I did that for a while, for a long while. And then suddenly popped up, popped a Pfizer appointment. Or you say three cherries in a row, Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer. Exactly. So those of us who, those of you, and I say us, but those of you in your ilk who, uh, can get who, who are able to sort of like navigate that online registration process and all that. Who you you were known as, as you said earlier, the smug vaccinated now, right? Well, but yes, because, you know, in Bridget Jones' diary, when she was single, she referred to the smug marrieds, and I, I realized when I tried to describe how, how great it was that I'd gotten the vaccine to friends who hadn't, and the look on their faces made me realize that I was one of the smug vaccinated. So it's best kept to yourself. But it is astonishing to me how hard it's been for people. And it's been hard for people, not only ordinary people, but even the rich and famous are having trouble, which is the only silver lining I see in this is that, you know, there's no VIP express lane for this. Right. And this is the other the other component of your piece this week, which was in some ways this this struggle to get the vaccine is 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 the new equalizer, but it's created the new have and the have nots among the among the rich who are sort of always used to there's, you know, there are things like there's always got to be another lane for me to get into, right? There's a, there's, there's got to be a sort of like a faster way to do this. But now, they're sort of lumped right in with my 85 year old mother trying to find out how to get this thing, right? Well, exactly. I mean, the length you realize that they're actually doing a good job of not playing favorites when you think about some of the lengths that people go to. And my favorite one was this wealthy couple, young couple. I mean, she was 20 in 30s and he's in his 50s, um, so not eligible. And they flew their private plane to the Yukon in Canada and pretended to be motel workers and went to a place that serves sort of elderly indigenous peoples, uh, a tiny little area, and got their vaccine that way. And then, of course, they were found out and people were horrified that they did that. But then you sort of realize, well, that's how hard it is. Um, You have to go to the Yukon and pretend you're a motel worker. Well, or as you say in your in the piece, there's now sort of even people from the UK are going on COVID uh, vaccine vacations, right? Right. This is actually from the Times. There's some uh, travel agency in London that, you know, for $15,000 will arrange to take you to Dubai to get a vaccine, to buy a vaccine. And of course, on one hand, you think, well, that's terribly unfair. On the other hand, you think, who wants to go to Dubai? to get a vaccine. So it's terrible, terrible, terrible that there isn't enough and there won't be enough for quite a while, but it is interesting to see how that plays out socially. I think vaccine status is the new relationship status. <laughs> well, but in terms of relationship status, Alison, I'm just going to, now that you're on the on the program, I'm just, I don't feel any guilt about outing you on this because, you know, in the weeks and months before the vaccine, I'm just going to tell all the listeners that Alison was like, okay, listen, here's the thing, guys. I will get the vaccine, but here's my plan. I'm going to tell people I didn't get it so that I don't have to, I can continue not seeing people. <laughs> no, I know. Well, well no. <laughs> you, your cover's blown. She's going to feel bad declining her dinner invitations now. Maybe I'll say the vaccine didn't work. I got the wrong one. <laughs> I can't believe I got the Russian one. I wonder if it doesn't work. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, it's like we all, Michael and I like to think that we're patient people, but in the past week, we've both been talking about how uh, we're getting a little impatient for this. Like July seems like a really long ways away. You guys are never going to get vaccinated because you're too young. So there. So while Michael especially finds that offensive, it's kind of, (laughs) you know, I mean, there has to be an advantage to being too old to do anything else. 
So I'm, I'm quite pleased. Now that you're vaccinated, how's your life changing? Not at all. Because I've only had the one shot and, you know, the two number, the second shot could be canceled. And, you know, they just tell, you know, you want, I mean, quite seriously, you don't want to be gallivanting about and going, you know, booking ski vacations. But just because you are protected doesn't mean that other people, they don't know yet whether, in fact, you might still carry something that could infect someone else. So if I were dating, I wouldn't be. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so in other words, nothing's changed. You still have a very healthy afternoon nap appetite. It's not a nap. It's a brisk walk in the bedroom. <laughs> With your yeah. eyes closed. Got it. While, while lying down. Exactly. All right. Well, we're happy that you've gotten it. And we're, we're just as happy that you wrote this great piece in the issue. So thank you so much for coming on. All right, guys. Well, listen, thank you. And um, don't worry, you'll get vaccinated someday. Well, Michael, I think now we know. Alexander's making me feel better about not being old enough. I mean, we're, we're in that weird position where we're old, but like not old enough. She's just trying to make you, you know, she's just don't fall for it. I took you know the bait. Don't fall I, for it. I took the bait. I'm just going to say like, all right, like, you know, you and Graydon can go to the office and I'll continue to work from remotely. God, if they go to the office, I'm going to be jealous. I like going to the office, especially when those guys are there. Oh, well, fine. All right, we'll just stay here, isolating and alone and eating our feelings, at least in my case. <laughs> All right, great. Well, you know, Michael, rich people behaving badly is a whole genre for us here at Airmail. And on that note, what about rich people behaving vainly? Is vainly a word? I don't know. Tell us about these bespoke biopics uh, that Mark Elwood reported on for you. You know, it's it's the kind of latest way to spend your money. You know, you what what are rich people like? They back in the day, they used to have their portraits painted. Then they'd have someone write a uh, write a sort of family history. And you know what? Like paint pictures and having Andy Warhol paint your portrait that might be nice. But no one's going to read a book while you. But what you can really do now is you can hire a director to do your your story or your family story, a sort of bespoke biopic, as Mark reports, which has kind of um, gotten some traction in the UK, of course, because they have their social strata there and there's many wealthy and, and entitled and, and titled people there who are now taking advantage of this. There's a guy named Andrew Gemmel. He's done a bunch of blue chip assignments. He did the weddings of both Princess Eugenie and her sister Beatrice. He also did Elton John's Bachelor Party, film that, and several Beckham family christenings. So he's familiar with how to film the rich and wealthy and how they like to be portrayed. So you, you can now hire him and he'll um, film your life, work on a script with you, maybe even hire a very high-end TV uh, interviewer to sort of throw questions at you and then film it into a nice, turn it into a nice film. So there you go. Handy dandy. Michael, who should direct your biopic? <laughs> Jeez, you put you caught me flat-footed. Who would who would direct yours? Sofia Coppola. Hello. Oh, nice. You know what? Uh, you just remind me of the last week or a week or so ago when we had Rachel Johnson on the show, Boris Johnson's sister, and I, I asked her. I said, "Who would play Boris in a biopic?" Right? And she said, oh, "I don't know. I can't." Uh, and we none, we were all casting about for it. So news came out this week that. There's now a movie in development by Michael Winterbottom, the guy who did the the trip movies with Steve Coog and other people. It's called This Sceptered Isle. It's going to be about this moment with Brexit and COVID in the UK. And you know who's signed on apparently to play Boris Johnson? Tell me. 
Kenneth Branagh. <gasps> Brilliant. So there you go. Oh, I love it. You know, Michael, speaking of uh, documentaries and biopics, uh, we got to talk about Fake Famous for five seconds. Well, this is great. I remember when we launched Airmail. I mean, this was ages ago, but um, Annabelle Dunn was in our office and she's a producer of documentaries and she's worked with Graydon on quite a few of them. Anyway, she was telling me about this and I'm so excited that it's finally coming to life. So uh, it's written, directed and produced by Nick Bilton. And it explores uh, the meaning of fame and influence in this crazy digital age that we're living in. So they follow three Los Angeles-based normal people, right, with pretty small followings. And then they try to turn them into famous influencers. And it really gets at the heart of the the fraud and the grift behind this entire universe. Um, it's a really, really great doc. Highly recommend it. It's coming out on HBO on Wednesday, February 3rd. Okay, I'm not suggesting that this next person who's in this week's edition of airmail is fake famous but they did use instagram to achieve fame and uh you wrote about her i keep wanting to call her nurse becky but we call her dr becky you know every generation gets its kind of parenting guru which kind of leverages the insecurities and fears of parents you've discovered dr becky in this lockdown and she's sort of like uniquely steering into this parenting during lockdown, right? And in the early days of the pandemic, as I wrote about in the piece, you know, I was struggling with lockdown, Zoom school, feeling completely overwhelmed, like pretty much every other parent in America. And one of my friends told me about Dr. Becky. So I started following her on Instagram. And in the past year, she's gone from 200 followers to, I think at last count, she's at about 345,000 followers. Um, and as far as I can tell, it's all organic growth. Um, and she basically just posts videos and quote cards of very serviceable tips about how to deal with situations with your kids. Now, as we say in the piece, none of this is especially new. You know, parenting advice has been around for a long time, and this is pretty well-tread territory. But she's incredibly savvy with the internet, and she has become a sensation. Everyone is talking about Dr. Becky. They're taking her workshops. She finished a book proposal. Um, she's a big deal, and, and she's become very influential. What do you think about her, Michael? Do you want me to say on air what I've said per, uh, off air to you? Okay, maybe, maybe a, a, a diluted version of that. Well, first of all, you should be teaching parenting classes because you're the you're the best mother I, I know out there. So Aww. I don't think you need any parenting advice, and 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 I mean that sincerely. So here's the thing: in many ways, she's very useful, and I found her really really helpful to me. We always have a complicated relationship with the experts in our lives, right? The people that are telling us how to do things better, and the people that are presenting themselves as a source of sort of infinite wisdom and knowledge on these matters. And, and Becky tries to mitigate against that to some extent by reminding us that she's real and she's a mom too, and she she knows what it's like not to do things right. She's sort of the perfect character who was built with this pandemic in mind. She is right for this moment in that you said like, you know, you and your other parent friends, mothers say like, what is this generation going to be like that was, you know, homeschooled on Zoom uh, as mothers are, are are day drinking white wine in the kitchen, right? And it's 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 a crazy time, right? It's like being, you know, you know, our, our parents, like the children, after you were raised by a, a child who grew up in the depression, you know, what's it going to be like in twenty years when these these kids are adults out in the world having their own families and what are they going to be impacted by and, and yes and a lot of her techniques and strategies have been super helpful for me and you know a lot of other parents that i know so hats off to becky 
Thank you for all your free tips. And uh, we'll just see where she goes. She's probably going to hate the piece, but you know. All publicity is good publicity. There you go. Before we bow out, is there anything at all you can recommend to us? Anything. So I'm continuing on my to pretending like it's Golden Globe season and award season. Like in a, in a perfect year, Golden Globes would be right around now. We'd have well been enjoying that and watching and knowing the, the films that are in contention. So last, uh, the other night I watched um, another film, which I think w- is, is going would be getting a lot of buzz this season. One Night in Miami. It's the story of, um, uh, based on true facts, but sort of imagined based on a play by, uh, uh, Kemp Powers, who then spun into this film about the uh, the night after Muhammad Ali defeats Sonny Liston for the heavyweight title of the world in Miami, Florida, and then four friends come together: Ali, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X. And uh, so, it's a nice, tight film. Terrific performances. I've liked that. I've also liked just about everyone else. Have you gotten into Lupin on Netflix yet? No. The Gentleman Thief, the whole family can enjoy. It was a French production, but it's smash hit around the world. It's Netflix's number one show around the world now, and it tells the story. stars Omar Sy, who plays a guy named Hassan Diop. He's a Senegalese immigrant in in, um, France who becomes a very suave con man and pulls off a big caper at the Louvre. And uh, it goes from there. So I really enjoy it. I would highly recommend that. Well, thank you very much. And you? And moi. Um, I watched The American President. Netflix algorithm, man. They know me too well. Wait, the Michael Douglas movie? Yes, Sigourney. No. Wait, that is so weird because it came up in our, our algorithm the other night and we both watched the trailer and it's like, oh my God, you know, because look, I know everyone hated my, us recommending the Kominsky method, with Michael Douglas, but it was like, oh my God, look at that guy 40 years ago. Well, I mean, I love Michael Douglas. Like that Kaminsky method, compl- I mean, I'm a super fan now. It's actually like not a very good movie, but it's just kind of fun to watch after all the political uh, morass we found ourselves in for the past four years. Um, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, Annette Benning, 1995, uh, what's not to love? So does it hold up in terms of like... It holds up decently well. It's like, take the West Wing, subtract the really snappy writing... And add in a love story, and there you have it. But Michael Douglas is very charming, and you kind of got to love Annette Benning. Um, it's it's a fun movie. It's a fun watch on a Tuesday night. Good. All right. There we go. I like it. And it's you know it's maybe we can believe in you know that there is romance in the White House again, right? I hope so. Yeah. And then, Michael, there are two movies I really want to see. I'm trying to track down screeners. A screener is an advanced copy of the film, and. One of them doesn't want to give it to me. Uh, I'm dying to see Me, You, Madness, which is the new film from uh, Louise Linton, the wife of uh, former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Can't wait to see that. As you know, I'm obsessed with all things Linton, but they don't want to give me the screener. So if anyone has one, you know where to send it. I'm dying to see this movie, Minari, which was written by Lee Isaac Chung. um, And it's a semi-autobiographical take on Chung's uh, upbringing. So it follows a family of South Korean immigrants who are trying to make it in America during the 1980s in rural Arkansas. So they moved to a farm in Arkansas. And I'm I'm really, uh, I've heard some great things about this movie. And there was an interesting controversy around it, Michael. So Minari was entered into the Best Foreign Language Award category for the Golden Globes, and that's where it's been. But um, 
there was a big controversy around it in December because uh, the directors and all the stars are in fact American. They're Korean, uh, Korean American. So, oops, oops. Anyway, so that's one to watch, and I'm I really can't wait to see that. And then you know, you know, you know, you know something I have on my radar that I've, I've I'm I'm trying to get a hold of. Tell me. Trying to get an arc, an advanced reader copy from Julie Vitale, our our, our, our books editor. Uh, do you know about Girl A? No. So Girl A, it's coming out in, I think, about two weeks, written by a woman in the UK named Abigail Dean. And it's sold for six figures there. She was a part, she was a, she was a Google, uh, a lawyer for Google in the UK, started writing this debut novel. And then it's now sold here in the US for seven figures, they say. It's a thriller about siblings who flee abusive parents and their house of horror. So it sort of kind of ripped from the headlines. And if you, there was a very famous case a couple of years ago about the Turpin family, this family of these parents who had like, 12 or 14 had kids and, and, and or a mixed family and like kept them in prison and, and, and they, they, these kids escaped. So it's sort of told through the mind and the eye of one of those kids. It's supposed to be fantastic. I'm sure the film rights are already being bid high. So I'm trying to get that. And on a, on a literary note, do you know about Maya Angelou Barbie? Yes, but tell us, tell us. So Barbie's released a Maya Angelou doll. And I'm just saying like, you know, my only question is, is an Amanda Gorman doll? The young poet from the Biden administration is—is is that far behind now? I don't know. By the way, uh, I love the fact that Amanda Gorman has now signed with IMG Models. My friend Lisa Benson's representing her. Go, Lisa! Such a smart move. I see a big beauty contract in her future. Our fashion contract. I mean, she's gorgeous. She's smart. She's thoughtful. She's got it all. Amanda Gorman, our girl of the moment. Smart, thoughtful, stylish. Got it all. That's Ashley Baker. Hello. I'll take it, Michael. On that note, will you please? Let's just stop there. It doesn't get better than that. I'll just read this out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. Our new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us.